You're listening to a selection of stories from this week's Morning Ireland. Exponential growth in infection rates in parts of Donegal and concern that other counties could also be heading for level three restrictions. The continuing spread of COVID-19 is causing alarm on both sides of the border. The acting chief medical officer will discuss the pandemic today with his Northern Ireland counterpart, focusing on ways to reduce cross-border movement, which has been identified as at least one factor contributing to the surge of infections in Donegal. In a moment, we'll be talking to a Lifford-based GP and hearing from the town of Stranoller at the centre of this outbreak. But first, here's Taoiseach Michal Martin outlining how County Donegal now has the highest rate of COVID-19 in the country. Over the last seven days, Donegal's seven-day incidence rate of infection is more than anywhere else in the country. Clusters are growing throughout the county. And as one example, we've established tonight that in one local, uh, local district area, Stranelor LEA, we're looking at an infection rate of 336 per 100,000. With those sorts of numbers, we clearly have no choice other than to act and act decisively. Taoiseach speaking last evening. Well, we can talk now to Connie Duffy, a senior journalist with the Donegal Democrat, and to Dr Paul Armstrong, who's a Lifford-based GP. Thank you both for talking to us this morning. Dr Armstrong, perhaps I can come first to you. I mean, not only are, are the, the numbers, as we speak, alarmingly high for infection rates in Donegal, but they've grown uh, very rapidly in a very short period of time. Has, has that been evident, evident to you in your practice? Good morning, Brian. Well, yes, uh, we're certainly seeing that. Uh, it was two weeks ago that today, I think, that we took uh, the first phone call from a patient who was concerned about their symptoms. And uh, they were triaged and they, they uh, met the criteria for testing and were sent for testing. And the same, uh, within, about, within about 24 hours, we had two other um, uh, patients who uh, had symptoms and became positive. Now, the three appeared to be separate. Two of them may have subsequently been linked. But uh, since that, yes, we, we have seen uh, significant numbers of people who have developed symptoms uh, or been contact, very close contacts with people who've had symptoms and who've been positive. And across the, the age ranges, um, or are, are, are you seeing again this pattern that's been reported nationally of uh, younger people being more likely to come forward as, uh, as needing testing and proving positive? Yes, uh, that, that is our experience. Uh, initially, in the March-April period, uh, we were seeing the old, older and more vulnerable people who were being infected, but this time it's definitely the younger age group. Of our numbers, uh, about 60% are in the 20 to 40 age group. These are the people who are working and uh, travelling and mixing. Uh, the small number of teenagers, uh, some numbers over 40, but there have been four over 70 in our practice alone. Now, fortunately, this time, again, along with the, the national and international picture, uh, the, people, the, the older, more vulnerable people are not getting it in, in significant numbers so far. Mm. Um, Connie Duffy in Stranoller, uh, we heard there that Tisha giving the latest figures for the Stranoller electoral area, 336 uh, per 100,000, uh, the 14-day rate. That's a, an extraordinary figure. Uh, what are people making of it there? Yeah, there's a general feeling here, Brian, that um, it's shoulder to the wheel time. Um, I suppose it's 
best maybe to clarify one thing uh, you mentioned about Stranorder. It's the Stranorder Municipal District, or the what would have been called uh, the electoral area. Mm. It's a large area. It stretches from outside Derry in a village called St. Johnson, right up to Glenfin in the start of the Gaeltacht. So it's not confined to one particular town of Stranorder. It's the whole sort of general area. Mm. But uh, generally speaking, like, people were being put on guard that something was going to happen but I suppose yesterday's announcement about this particular area in Dundagall in general was a bolt out of the blue for everyone. So in one sense people not not, not taken by surprise um, there was an awareness the numbers were, were rising but just the scale of the increase. Absolutely. I mean, over the last number of months, really, we've, um, because of the beauty of the county, we've attracted so many staycationers, for want of a better word, and they've been very evident all over the county, and in particular, sort of the seaside towns and the various visitor attractions, plus the fact, like, we, we, we share a border with Northern Ireland, and inevitably, like, you know, come holiday time, come day tripping time, you'll have a vast number of northern visitors coming across here on a regular basis. Like, 93% of our entire land border is with Northern Ireland, so we've had we've had an unchecked, shall we say, uh, population drifting over and back all the time. Mm. Plus the fact you have uh, generally have 90% of 99% of people that have come across are generally adhering to all the rules and the conditions. Now, you'll have your... Uh, your your people who don't believe in this and like there was a, a protest uh, gathering shall we say organized for Letter Kenny this Saturday uh, involving these people uh, the anti-mask crowd I don't know if it's going ahead or not I've doubted very much but um, generally speaking people have been very very uh, conscious mm. of, of doing the right thing uh, I mean Dr Armstrong not only do people travel from Northern Ireland to Donegal for holidays there's, there's regular movement backwards and forwards people working in one jurisdiction and living in another <laughs> students travelling backwards and forwards uh, at all, at all levels. So as you were looking at the figures uh, for, for, for for Derry and the rising numbers there, I suppose you could also expect that uh, that would begin to feed through in what you would see in Donegal as well. Absolutely. The, the people do move over and back in both directions for, for all kinds of reasons. We had a previous experience in the country where three counties together were had restrictions, Kildare, Offaly and Leash, I think. And our county boundaries are quite arbitrary, going back to 1500s, so they, they sometimes don't follow logical um, uh, geographical areas. Donegal, Derry and Tyrone are, are, might be separated by the foil, but they're joined at the hip and people move so, and, and, and work across it all the time. So when it comes then to, 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 to testing and tracing contacts of a confirmed case, um, is, is that an issue? That is, is the border bec- an issue in relation to that? Are you able to cross the border to carry out those tests? Uh, not as far as I'm aware of. No, you're not. Uh, obviously, the, the contact tracing is, is, is challenging. The people who are doing it um, have a significant workload in trying to get through the numbers, particularly where you get a cluster or, or a group, that, as has happened in our area. Um, so, so sometimes contact tracing is, is quite difficult, and people then end up contacting their GP to try and uh, get uh, to see what to do, to get advice, or to see whether a test needs to be arranged. So, and certainly, um, I, we're not aware of any um, coordinated border contact tracing. Yeah. So, Connie, Connie Duffy, talk today of trying to reduce uh, or in some way limit cross-border movement. Um, is that realistic? Is that something that would be supported by people in Donegal? What, what's, your, what's your take on that? 
Well, realistic, no, definitely not, because there's numerous border crossings that uh, operate uh, between Donegal, Derry and Tyrone and Fermanagh, you have to remember, comes into the equation for the south of the county. So, realistically, uh, it, it would be a, be a drastic step to take. Um, I suppose everyone is watching to see what the outcome of the uh, talks between the Taoiseach and the First Minister might uh, generate. Hopefully, common sense will prevail, but uh, it's going to take a, a sort of a, a massive effort on everyone's behalf because anecdotally we're hearing stories like Paula said about younger people being affected and maybe not taking the responsibility as seriously as, as we would like them to take it. We've heard different stories of, of, of gatherings and stuff like that there mm. but as regards stopping the, the flow across the border um, it would take an earthquake. Your message Paul Armstrong to people across Donegal and, and, and across the northwest. Well, I think we, we stick to the public health message, you know, which is, uh, you know, to, to uh, be careful with your contacts. One thing we are finding is that even if we uh, do a test on somebody and we advise them, look, you need to isolate, and then you ring them with the result, sometimes a positive result, and they, they say to you, hold on, I'm in the car, um, I can't, I just wait till I pull in and they tell you I'm on the way to the garage to get the car serviced, or I'm on the way to school with the kids, while they're waiting for the, the test results. And in fairness, the results come back very promptly. It's not like it's something in general that takes a long time so people just need to to remember the kind of basic rules about washing well gelling well masking well and keeping their distance the old bumper sticker thing we just just watch your contacts right. that's the secret to this okay we leave it there dr paul armstrong and lifford thank you and thanks also to connie duffy from the Donegal democrat joining us from estranola <laughs> A day after further restrictions were announced to curtail the spread of COVID-19 in Dublin, Gardaí were called to an outdoor party attended by around 100 people in the south inner city. Video of the event has circulated online. It shows a marquee with music playing at the Oliver Bond flat complex, which is in an area that has one of the highest COVID-19 infection rates in the country. Here's a snippet from it. Well, we can talk to Angus O'Snothig, who is Sinn Féin TD for Dublin South Central. The Gardaí were called and they came. They say that they didn't detect any breaches of the regulations. What's your response to that? Well, the Gardaí were called from 7 o'clock or half 7 onwards. And when they eventually came and uh, dispersed the crowd, it was after 12 o'clock. So if they bothered turning up earlier on, they would have seen exactly all of the breaches of uh, the the guidelines, the public health guidelines, which were going on, which had the residents in the complex fearing for themselves and distraught because of the level of noise and also the fact that there was so much drugs involved and people also urinating on their uh, stairwells and kind of just the level of noise in the complex uh, just had people frightened. There's personal responsibility, isn't it? Ultimately, uh, the Gardaí presumably can't enforce every single, um, you know, they can't come on the scene of every single potential breach. It's, it's personal responsibility that has to be a priority here. Well, there's obviously a degree of personal responsibility and kind of the young people who are involved in this obviously don't get the public health uh, message, but there is a responsibility on the Gardaí. The, the, the new Garda station in Kevin Street is only uh, less than a kilometre away and yet they couldn't attend um, over 100 youths 
kind of taking drugs, drinking and partying away uh, in a way that is totally at odds with the, the, the public health guidelines. Uh, that's a disgrace. That has to be answered. It's a Dublin City Council uh, complex and Dublin City Council have questions to answer. So I will be contacting uh, the, the chief constable or the, the, the head of Garda Siakana, Drew Harris, today to make sure that kind of he acts according to the public health guidelines, which he didn't do in this case, and which we saw o- o- only at the weekend when they were announcing it, they were able to get uh, 20 or 30 Garda in Dolphin House uh, or Dolphin's Barn kind of to try and show, make a show that they were going to implement it and they're not in this area and it's a disgrace and I think the residents uh, are, are, are deserving of answers. When is the Garda going to uh, react and enforce or at least uh, make people comply with the public health guidelines in, okay. in, in this, this complex? Thank you very much for taking our call this morning. Ingus O'Snodig of Sinn Féin, TD for Dublin South Central. It's a minute and a half to nine. never get an exact cure for coronavirus. We don't have one for the flu or the common cold or other similar infections. Of course, the long-term goal for researchers is a vaccine that would create immunity against COVID-19. But a vaccine takes time. That's why researchers are on the hunt for drugs which would reduce symptoms, allow us to live alongside the virus and ultimately prevent the need for localised restrictions. Our reporter Amy Nirida has been finding out about the drugs developed so far and speaking to the experts. There's been some significant progress made in treatments, um, but probably the most effective treatment to date has been a very simple old drug called dexmethasone. Dexmethasone is a steroid ingested by means of a pill. It's the first treatment to be shown to reduce mortality in patients with COVID-19 who require oxygen or ventilator support. Professor of Experimental Immunology Kingston Mills explains how it works. It appears that this drug really does help with reducing the inflammation in the lung and um, increasing the chances of people with severe COVID-19 surviving the disease. So it's a relatively straightforward and simple treatment. It's not going to prevent all um, deaths from COVID-19, but certainly reducing morbidity. While it has reduced morbidity, it's so far been deemed ineffective for those with milder cases of COVID-19. Here's Dr Margaret Harris of the World Health Organization people who've gone into uh, inflammatory overload uh, where the, the immune system has has gone haywire and is wreaking havoc, then you give the steroids to bring down that, that inflammatory response. And that has reduced uh, death rates by around 30% in people with the severe form. But it's not an appropriate treatment unless you've got to that stage. In most people, they don't progress to that stage. And it may take some time before we discover a solution for those with milder cases, although there are some drugs undergoing clinical trials. It can take quite a while. So with antivirals, there are some antiviral medications that had already been tried. Unfortunately, we haven't seen a particularly uh, marked, marked effect to date. An antiviral is a drug which targets a specific virus and in some cases can take years to develop. For example, AZT, which is used to treat HIV, took seven years to be approved. While there aren't any antivirals available just yet, there are antibody cocktails currently on trial.
One of the other areas of work, and I, I've seen that there's quite some research going on in the UK on this, um, is to look at cocktails of monoclonal antibodies. So you, you get antibodies that are highly specific to the virus itself, and you can um, identify the ones that are most effective, and you may have single monoclonals or you may have a cocktail. The cocktail mentioned there by Dr. Harris is different to antivirals in that it requires antibodies from lab mice and recovered patients. Antibodies occupy the middle ground between antivirals and vaccines. One such cocktail is currently on trial in the UK. It's Regeneron's antibody cocktail and Martin Landry is co-leading the study. He is Professor of Epidemiology and Medicine at the University of Oxford. What they do is they bind to the um, so-called spike proteins that sit on the outside of the virus and uh, prevent it from entering into cells. They prevent it, therefore, from reproducing. They prevent it from causing its damage. The antibodies that we're using um, from Regeneron uh, bind in two different places on those uh, on those proteins. So that if one happens to change over time, you've sort of got a belt and braces approach um, where we're Um, able to block uh, another site as well. Like the dexmethasone steroid we mentioned earlier, the antibody cocktail is aimed at patients suffering from severe symptoms of COVID-19 and therefore would only be suitable in hospitals and clinical settings. The drug is uh, intravenous. It has to be given through a drip. There are some other antibodies which perhaps can be given by an injection into the muscle, um, but they're not ready for big clinical studies yet. And in either case, those are not the sorts of treatments that one would want to be using in the enormous number of people who have uh, fairly mild COVID. Um, They have a a sort of flu-like illness and, and get better after four or five days. And while an antiviral may take some years to develop, a drug like the one under the scope of Professor Landry could be on the market much sooner. In the course of COVID, we've had a couple of examples of this already where we've you found new treatments or new uses for existing treatments and that time between um, getting the results and getting them approved and into practice into uh, real doctors hands and and, in, and into patients has been very short indeed often a matter of days I think there are ways of accelerating uh, the the time between we get results and we and we get to use uh, the treatment if it works. Professor Martin Landry ending that report from Amy Nureda. Ireland's economy shrank by 6.1% between April and June. Earlier this month, the Tonish warned that Ireland was headed for a budget deficit ranged, ranging from 25 to 30 billion euro by the end of the year. And we've already heard predictions from the IMF that the world is facing its deepest recession since the 1930s. We've been assured that unlike the credit crisis 12 years ago, Ireland's economy is now fundamentally sound. With access to cheap borrowing, Ireland can carry the burden. But many are already hurting during this Covid recession. How bad will it get? And how should Ireland weather the storm? Tommy Meskel reports. You can't ignore gravity for very long. We've been able to suspend the laws of, if you like, economic gravity for some time uh, because it's been a disaster. But the disaster, the emergency phase of this crisis is over. I'm the former owner of the now-closed Good Hair Company on Main Street, Abbeyfield, County Limerick. Financial crisis, the ash cloud, foot and mouth disease, 9-11 in the States... 
I would take two of them together rather than have to deal with this. It has been just extraordinary. An economy in hibernation on life support or placed into deep freeze. The descriptions have varied over the past six months, but like the virus that has caused this recession, its full effect is hard to ascertain. Some businesses will survive COVID, others will be left reeling for some time to come. And for those most unfortunate, COVID-19 will close their business for good. There's a vast amount of uncertainty about what the future shape of the economy will be, what people's um, economic prospects are going to look like and where uh, people will work in 2021. Stephen Kinsler is Professor of Economics at the University of Limerick. If you're on a higher incomes with a secure job, uh, things are far better for you than somebody on a low income with a less secure job. The second part is um, a huge amount of the employment in our economy, you know, 68% or so, is in SMEs, most of whom are very small. SMEs uh, need continuous funding, they need to trade every day. The disruption has created a massive funding gap. The SRI has estimated that the funding gap will be something uh, between 9 and 15 billion euros. Um, uh, for the next few months. The state can and should help balance and meet that gap. That doesn't mean that all SMEs will survive. Um, It will create a massive retraining problem for Ireland because lots of firms I don't think will survive. During the height of the pandemic in Ireland, the documentary Abbey Feelgood aired on RTE. It told the heartwarming story of the 16 successful barbers and hair salons in Abbeyfield County, Limerick, the town with the most hairdressers per head of population. One of those featured was Billy Mann of the Good Hair Company. Salon was always about good hair and good company. And I decided, you know what, I'm going to call the salon <laughs> the Good Hair Company. As he sat down to watch the documentary on April 20th, he knew all was not well. It was quite a poignant moment, actually, to be honest, sitting on the couch watching it that night, because at that stage, I had a feeling that things were, the tide was turning and and going back out, and I didn't think I would be on it this time. I had a rental property. I had all of those extra bills that I would have to pay, etc. And I knew the longer that this was going on, I knew more of my resources would be depleted. Around what time would you have decided these doors aren't going to open again? Unfortunately, the week of my birthday. I was 52 on the 27th of June, and it was that week. Those of us that work in hair salons in the towns and the small towns of Ireland, we're all local, and in like the likes of it, we feel quite a substantial employer within the town. And if the likes of me and other salons start to go suddenly they, no you no longer have staff earning money so the knock-on effect is is there it's fatal link yes we can yes we can we would have done the obama and the queen elizabeth visit for both the guardi and for the state and the opw and on the back of that we handled entirely the 1916 commemoration events in dublin city center David Mongi is owner of Mongi Communications in Kildare, which provides sound and vision for some of the country's biggest events. For David, payment breaks on expensive equipment are drawing to a close. His valued staff are seeing reductions in their COVID support payments. He fears the reality for businesses like his is starting to bite. 
we've been very lucky in terms of the, the, the COVID scheme, the payment schemes, but they have been significantly reduced and some of my team here have taken a bit of a hit in that regard. Um, the banks gave us six months and the finance houses. In, in, in the event side of our business, we have people here for here almost 20 years and you know, it's not something you learn in college working in this industry, it's experience. And the big fear is that we're going to lose that talent. Paul Gallagher, General Manager, Buzzwoods Hotel. The hotel is synonymous, I suppose, with the activities across the road in Dolair and being so close. Uh, years ago, the, the bar was here. It was never across the road, so the, the bell to uh, vote would ring here once upon a time. That doesn't happen anymore. You, you had a difficult morning of us today. Can you just explain to me what happened this morning uh, and the phone calls you had to make? This morning, out of the 26 staff we had working in the hotel, 21 of those was spoken to this morning and were laid off. So it leaves the hotel from what was 60 people in the hotel and prior to COVID, 26 staff now. So total collapse in our business altogether. Our turnovers collapsed by no, over 90%. Our occupancy has declined from 90% to 12%. No recovery since we've opened on the 29th of June. It has been a complete struggle up to now and it's just getting worse, quite honestly. How much longer can a hotel like this survive? Uh, we hope that we will reach a point where recovery comes and our business can start to build again. Clearly, if that doesn't happen, there is a li very limited road beyond March of next year, quite honestly, and uh, that's a huge concern for all of us here. But I don't want to worry my staff any more than they are currently today, but clearly this is a business that's in some serious trouble. Paul Gallagher, General Manager of Buzzwell's Hotel in Dublin City Centre, ending that report from Tommy Meskell. Public health officials here are asking all of us to significantly reduce our social contact in the coming weeks as the number of confirmed cases of COVID-19 continues to surge. 396 new cases reported last evening, 241 of them in Dublin, which of course is now at level 3 plus under the government's Living with COVID plan. The rest of the country remains on level 2 with wet pubs, so-called, in those 25 counties being allowed to reopen from today. We'll be hearing from Mayo and Kilkenny a little later in the programme. But first, let's talk to Professor Philip Nolan, who chairs the Neffet Epidemiological Modelling Advisory Group, which tracks the progress of the virus across the country. Professor Nolan, a very good morning, and thanks for taking time to talk to us this morning. morning Almost 400 new cases reported last evening. Given the recent trajectory of the virus, is that what you would have expected? Uh, to a certain extent, yes, though I was... Just a little bit taken aback when I opened the file yesterday afternoon to find that that was the number. Um, so it's warning to us if warning was needed uh, to treat this virus seriously. Um, I was very taken by Mary Horgan's comments earlier this morning that this is not a time for panic or anxiety. And I, I don't think we should panic or be excessively anxious when we see these numbers. It, it requires a calm response. We, we still can get this virus under control. Uh, Dr. Roland Lynn would have warned us that it's going to take at least a week for the measures that we're asking everybody to buy into in Dublin and countrywide to show their effect. So yes, we did expect numbers to continue to rise in the course of this week um, and would hope to see uh, a change in, in the following week and the week after. So it, it, is, it is a reminder, I think, to everybody out there 
uh, to observe those basic measures and, and to reduce our social contacts to those that are a priority. But as you said yourself, not, not unexpected. Right. Well, but just to give further context to this, um, we have this increase in confirmed cases, and it's not just in Dublin, there's other parts of the, the country as well, I think, causing concern. But we're also testing many more people now than we did in the earlier stages of this pandemic when there were similar numbers. So how much are these figures a reflection of that? More people being being tested? Yeah, that's, that's very true. Um, appropriately. Um, we're, t- we're testing very many more people and we're testing all close contacts of confirmed cases. So we're detecting a lot more mild and asymptomatic disease that we wouldn't have been testing for or looking for or detected back in March and April. And we have a very useful and, and, and very well-conducted uh, seroprevalence study, which suggests that back then in March and April, for every case we detected, there were two other mild or asymptomatic cases out there so, so now we're detecting many of those uh, cases. It's really important because the detection of those cases that interrupts the chains of onward transmission. So even though they may be very mild cases, they're still capable of being infectious. But yes, to put it in perspective, mm. if the, the, the three or 400 cases today is the equivalent of 100 to 130 cases back in March and April. And, and we breached 130 or so cases around the 20th of March. And we didn't get back below it until the 19th of May. So, so the impact of, of the cases we're seeing today would be similar to the impact of, of 100 to 130 cases back then. And I do want to be careful here in the sense that there's a lot of talk about, well, we're not seeing hospitalizations, we're not seeing people pass away. Sadly, we are. Um, back in March and April, uh, the mortality rate in over 65s for people with more severe disease who got it was one in five. We think the mortality now will be around one in 20. That's not negligible. This is still a lethal virus. And that's why there is an obligation really on all of us to protect the vulnerable by suppressing transmission of the virus and preventing it circulating in our community. To focus for a moment on the restrictions announced on Friday for Dublin, you've said that we will really have to wait a week or so, maybe longer, to see mm. if, if they are having an effect. Uh, how will we know if they're having an effect? Will the numbers, will it be a question of the numbers stabilising? Should they be coming down um, in, a, in, a, in a significant way? What, what are you looking out for? Yeah, unfortunately, the dynamics of viral transmission are that you, you, you go in quickly and you reverse out slowly. So it, even if people work really hard over the next two to three weeks, at best, what we will see is a stabilisation and perhaps a trend downwards. And I, again, if we look back to uh, uh, April, May, June, the virus arrived very, very quickly and we eliminated it much more slowly. So, so I would ask people, if, if it stabilises in, in 10 days' time, that's a really hopeful sign. And I'd, I'd ask people to watch, not every day, the case numbers will go up and down every day, but let's watch the average. And if in 10 days' time that is stabilising, then it's working. And that's the point that people should stay with us then, keep with us for the remainder of the three weeks. Uh, uh, to see if we can get the trend downwards and then we'll, we'll see where we're at. We're still going to have to prioritise our social contacts in the long haul but if we're going in the right direction then uh, perhaps we can uh, open up just a little bit more 
than we are now. To look for a moment at the situation outside Dublin, and Roland Glynn specifically mentioned the um, uh, the number of infections per 100,000 in, in mm. Donegal and Waterford and Louth. Louth, I think, is, is more than 100 uh, per 100,000. If, if those numbers remain at their current levels or even increase, will, will those counties and perhaps others as well be heading for level three restrictions? Well, again, restrictions are something that nobody wants to impose. I guess um, restrictions will apply if that is the only mechanism to bring the disease back under control. And the different counties are different. Uh, Again, Mary Horgan made the really important point that local surveillance by the public health doctors in the region is important. And they can tell us in some cases that those high incidences are associated with outbreaks. In other cases, it seems a bit like Dublin. It's a lot of Uh, household outbreaks and it's not clear entirely where the disease is spreading outside the household. So it will vary from county to county depending on the picture. But I think the more important thing is the message to everybody. Uh, This is a it's a subtle message about reducing your social contacts by half. And if we do that, uh, then not only can Dublin, we would hope, uh, move on uh, from from level three back towards level two, uh, but the other counties uh, could avoid the, the kinds of restrictions that have had to be imposed in Dublin. Yeah, on the one hand, you and and Ronan Glynn and others are saying reduce your social contacts. On the other hand, we have now the wet pubs, as they're called, mm. outside Dublin reopening today. Um, aside from what I was suggesting to Mary Horgan, perhaps a mixed message there. Is there an inherent risk in that? Because obviously, people's opportunity to socialise will be will be increased with that move and I think that's the important thing it, it, so we need to ask ourselves the question so so you can go to the pub uh, outside Dublin the question is should you and how often so it's not that we want people to have no social contact social contact is important uh, for our welfare our mental health for just it's the the the, the lubricant in our community mm. so to speak so so f- for people's welfare and 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 health uh, we want them to do some level of of social interaction and it's just every social interaction carries a risk and the more interactions you have the greater the risk so we'll just say to people um, to to exercise that personal discretion um, about how often they're going to engage in what kinds of social activity um, and, and not to eliminate their social contacts in the coming weeks, but to have them. And if that, if that means going out to the pub once a week to meet one's friends, well, fine. That's, that's the priority for that individual. Just a final word about testing and tracing. We've reports this morning of the HSE looking abroad to increase testing capacity. Mm. Do we need... We just need more more testing capacity, more tracing resources to be able to actually hunt down the virus. Well, we've got a very strong testing capacity. Um, we, we do very much need investment in public health, the, and that's uh, planned um, for the doctors behind that testing capacity who, who investigate the cases and control the outbreaks. Um, and I, I do, again, like testing is an extremely important part of uh, our transmission prevention and control mechanisms, but it's not a substitute. I, one of the things that I guard against is not to listen to the voices who, who suggest that if we had some extraordinary test, trace and isolate, and I don't like that term because it simplifies the work uh, that needs to be done in terms of managing cases and outbreaks, that if we had this kind of magic system, then the rest of life could go back to normal. Our primary defence against this virus 
is, is to limit contacts to our priority contacts and to be really careful when we go about it. So just as a restaurant and a pub need to be a controlled environment now, so do our homes need to be somewhat controlled environments. So that's the first line of defence. The right. second line of defence is to test and uh, trace the contacts of and manage cases and outbreaks when they occur. But let nobody tell you that the latter is a substitute for the former. Professor Philip Nolan, Chair of the Epidemiological Modelling Advisory Group in Neffet. Thank you for talking to us. And nearly 500 whales have now been found beached on Tasmania's west coast in Australia. 200 new whales were found this morning, Australian time, and rescuers were already dealing with 270 since Monday. We can go live to the scene at Macquarie Harbour and talk to Edith Bevan, who is a reporter for ABC News. Edith, we're very grateful to you for taking our call. Have many of these whales died? Well, so far the count is now uh, 380 confirmed whale deaths. That makes it the largest, not only the largest stranding of whales in Australia, but also the largest death toll. So it's quite a confronting scene out here. As you have mentioned, we were originally dealing with 270 stranded whales. This morning that was up by another 200 when they discovered another pod of 200 whales. All of those were already dead in another section of the harbour here. And the last count uh, this afternoon was, as I said, 300. And 80 dead. They have managed to save 50 today, taking them out to um, to deeper water, out to the to the ocean. But um, some of those are, are mothers and calves, which is good news. There are still 30 alive but trapped, and the rescue attempts are uh, continuing tomorrow morning with that. And Edith, is it known why these 200, which were found today Wednesday, weren't found before now, weren't spotted before now? Well, I did ask that, and apparently it's because they were found in an area, which I guess, look, I guess it does make sense. It was found about, they were found about seven to eight kilometres further into the harbour than the original uh, 270, in an area where you wouldn't expect them to, to, uh, to have stranded if they were there, you know, sort of under the What they think has happened is that both are part of the same pod, uh, part of that original 270. They died earlier on and have simply been moved around the harbour by the current that's here. So um, they're almost like a breakaway group from the original pod that nobody realised uh, had been sort of shifting around the harbour over the last couple of days, which, you know, it seems amazing to think that. But when you're talking about a harbour that's actually bigger than Sydney Harbour, so it's, it's a huge harbour. Right, OK, well, that, that explains it. Um, and I know that, that whales have strong social bonds. So does that go some way to explaining what drew all of them to the shore in the first place? Yeah, and that's a, that's the thing. They're pilot whales. They are very social whales. They tend to move around in bigger pods than you would see with a, your, your average sort of whale. And one of the theories is that, you know, they might have been chasing a school of fish, have got into the shallows, and then once you know, a couple of them have uh, stranded themselves on the sandbars then the rest have all just followed. And certainly we've seen that with the rescue attempts that um, even as they've been taking them off the sandbar and trying to float them into deeper water, that they almost panic and turn around and swim back onto the sandbar because that's where the rest of their pod is. And you can hear them for the last three days. They've just been calling to each other, you know, every couple of seconds. So they're, they're constantly in contact, even in this stressed and, and stranded state, they're constantly talking to each other. So I guess that's also a signal of where, you know, they are in relation to each other. And that call would be really strong, you know, to, to, 
to come back and join the pod. So that's one of the difficulties that rescuers are facing is is how do you get these whales out to safety um, and, you know, override that call of the rest of the pod. Edith, thank you so much indeed for bringing us up to date live from Macquarie Harbour in Tasmania on Australia's west coast. Edith Bevan, who's a reporter for ABC News. It's 8.47. A former British ambassador to the United States who resigned after the leak of confidential correspondence describing the Trump administration as inept and dysfunctional has strongly criticised the UK government for its plan to break international law in relation to keeping an open border on the island of Ireland. Ambassador Sir Kim Dorrock resigned last July after President Trump, in response to the leak, tweeted that he was stupid and pompous. Sir Kim, who has published an account of his time in Washington called Collateral Damage, warns that by walking away from commitments on the border with its contentious internal market bill, Britain is now endangering the prospect of a post-Brexit trade deal with the United States. He's been telling me why. I think that if if Joe Biden wins the election on 4th November, then uh, I think his priorities in trade will be more around an EU-US free trade deal, which will be much, much bigger than a free trade deal with the UK. And I think his, some of his, uh, his team have already said that publicly. Or they will be around uh, the US joining the Trans-Pacific Partnership, that, uh, that big Pacific trade um, package. So I think for them, it wouldn't be an obviously strong economic priority compared to EU or Pacific um, deals to do a deal with the with the UK. If it's uh, Donald Trump, as it could well be still, um, then I think he would prioritise a UK-US free trade deal. But the Democrats have the power, if they hold the House of Representatives, to block that. And feelings are running, I judge, quite strongly in the the Democrat Party um, uh, on this issue. So I think that that in this case, um, their concerns about about the Good Friday Agreement would override the economic uh, arguments here. I mean, it's a concern that's been there almost for, from the, the outset, the, the Good Friday Agreement, the, the, what happens in relation to the border on this island. And you write in, in the memoir, and I quote, I reckoned the Irish embassy in DC were stirring things up. Uh, and the words I came to dread most were, hey, can you explain this Irish backstop to us? Um, how, how were the Irish embassies stirring things up? What were you seeing that led you to come to that conclusion? You are, and you have. I mean, this is intended as a compliment to your team in, uh, in Washington. Extremely effective. And there are a number of, um, of uh, senators and congressmen of an Irish background who follow events in Ireland extremely closely and followed the Brexit negotiations very closely, who were part of the support for the Good Friday Agreement. And they take these issues very seriously. And their links with your team in Washington are very strong. And um, you, know, you have the uh, St. Patrick's Day uh, annual event, which every other embassy, I would say, in, um, in uh, Washington envied, when uh, your Prime Minister Taoiseach would come across and get an annual meeting with the President and lots of celebrations of the Ireland-US relationship, which in its way is very special too. 
So you're, you're, you have a, a powerful voice in Washington. So they were doing an effective job uh, on behalf of all of us uh, at that time, I suppose, which it was your conclusion. Just in relation to the, another aspect of all of this, the, the risk that the UK could, uh, in the way it's behaving, torpedo a trade deal with the European Union. Now, that obviously would be very serious for this country, given the importance of trade between Ireland um, and Britain. Um, what do you see are the signs there? I think that the European Union have so far played this particular dispute, this uh, this argument uh, about the internal market bill very calmly. I think it is sensible of them not to have walked away from the negotiations, to continue with the negotiations, which are, there's another round imminently. But I do think that if the bill goes through with the provisions that the government have put in about potentially breaching international law, I can't see, even if the Commission was to endorse it, which I think is doubtful, I can't see it getting through the European Parliament. So I think it's, as I say, sensible of the Commission to play it calmly and to continue with the negotiating process for the time being. But I do think it could be a, you know, a huge obstacle if, uh, if things stay as they are. If I could turn to your resignation last year, people perhaps may remember uh, some of the controversy around it. And one aspect was that Boris Johnson, now British Prime Minister, was running for the Conservative Party leadership at the time. He was uh, on the hustings, as it were, and he was asked on, on television, uh, would, would he back you when you've been attacked by, by Donald Trump? And he kicked a touch, I think is a fair way to describe his response. Now, you spoke to Boris Johnson subsequently. I think he, he phoned you, is that right? And you had a conversation uh, with him and he asked you, was his his behaviour on that occasion a factor in your decision? What did you say to him? Um, I said it was a factor, but um, I told him, and I said many times subsequently, there were a number of factors. Uh, the fact that the president had tweeted that they would no longer deal with me was obviously a big factor, but it was a it was a judgment that reflected an overriding view that I could no longer do the job effectively and deliver for London, for my government, what they would expect from a British ambassador in Washington, an ambassador anywhere, um, in the wake of the leaks. The leaks had made me think that it would be impossible to get the same confidences and the same insights from people inside the administration that I believed I was able to get hitherto. So, so... Um, what, the, what the then candidate, now Prime Minister, said, as I said, was a factor, but but I wouldn't say it was the the main factor. You anticipated, perhaps even predicted, the, the Trump victory back in uh, 2016. I think you uh, said that it was the likeliest outcome that he would get the, the Republican Party nomination at that stage. This was in the early part of the year. Uh, and that he would beat Hillary Clinton, you thought, because, and again, I quote you, she was damaged goods with serious likability and trust issues. What are your thoughts about 2016? You've already told us that you think there is a prospect that there could be a, a Trump re-election. Yeah, um, look, I think it is. I'm only seeing the polls and reading the reports like everyone else. Um, I suspect it is closer than it looks. Uh, Biden looks to be comfortably ahead in the national polls and ahead, though, by a smaller margin in all the battleground states. But the polling wasn't very accurate in in 2016, and I just question whether their models are better this time. That's factor one. Factor two, we still have the debates to come. And some 85 million million Americans watch the debates. 
and they can pay a critical role in people's decision on how they will vote. So they come, I think the first one is, is next week, and those potentially can be, a, can be a turning point as well. Also, you have to question whether random events or mm. I mean, for example, if there is a sudden breakthrough on a coronavirus vaccine, that can affect how people vote, because the polls also suggest that uh, people still have more confidence in terms of economic policy in the present administration and in the Republicans than the Democrats. So I think there's still a lot to play for. The former British ambassador to Washington, Sir Kim Dorrock, speaking to me a little earlier. Four statues of African women bearing torches removed from the Shelburne Hotel in Dublin in July in the mistaken belief that two of them were statues of slave women are to be reinstalled. The hotel on Steve St. Stephen's Green in the city centre, owned by US property company Kennedy Wilson and operated by the Marriott Group, has told the city council they will return the statues to their plinths outside the hotel where they had stood since 1867. For more, let's talk to art historian Kyle Layden and first to Ronan McGreevy, who has the story on the front page of the Irish Times this morning. Uh, Ronan, good morning. Remind us why the statues were removed. Uh, they were removed in solidarity with the uh, Black Lives Matter movement and its emphasis on the legacy, uh, legacy of slavery. It was around the time that the uh, Colston statue in Bristol was thrown into the uh, thrown into the river. So um, there had been uh, a complaint from somebody in America and as on foot of that they decided to remove the statues. Kyle, uh, good morning and thanks for taking our call today. You discovered the original catalogue from where the statues were ordered and found that they weren't slaves. Tell us more about what else you found. Yes, that's right. Um, the idea of these statues being slaves never sat terribly easily with me. So when I'd heard the statues were removed, I decided to try and do some research to see where the idea had come from. And certainly I could find no older source than Elizabeth Bowen's 1951 novel-esque evocation of the Shelburne and its people, which stated that the statues were in fact slaves. Um, a simple online search of the foundry Um, which made the statues, brought me to its 1867 trade catalogue from which the statues would originally have been ordered. Uh, This reveals that they were originally designed by the French sculptor Moreau and were mass-produced both as lampstands and fountains. Examples exist all over the world, from India to Paraguay. Uh, In no other example of the pair are any of them referred to as slaves. In the trade catalogue, they were simply given titles which referred to the ethnicity of the two women represented. One was Egyptian, the other sub-Saharan African. I then searched the archives of the Irish Builder, a contemporary magazine which detailed building schemes across the country. So on the 1st of March 1867, a correspondent provided a comprehensive technical description of the new Shelburne Hotel building, which stated that the statues were of Egyptian maids, so just Egyptian women, which were purchased not by the architect or indeed the owner of the Shelburne, but rather directly by the builder of the building from the foundry in France. Nowhere in any of this was there any evidence that they were to be seen as slaves. And as I said, the only source which I could find which named them any of them as being slaves, and it was only two of them, was Elizabeth Bowen's 1951 book. And I think as a result of that, there was a certain degree of circular reinforcement of the idea that at least two of the statues were slave girls. Elizabeth Bowen describes two as Elizabeth as, as Egyptian princesses as a result of their headdresses, and the other two she describes as slaves. But no, nothing older than that could be found. 
Why do you think these statues were chosen by the owners in 1867? Well, they were part of a mania for all things Egyptian, which really followed from Napoleon's campaign in Egypt from 1798 to 1801. Um, Napoleon wished to vest that campaign um, with enlightenment legitimacy. And so he sent a huge band of artists and scientists to Egypt in the wake of his troops to study Egyptian culture, which for the first time in history became widely known in Europe. Um, as a result, all things Egyptian suddenly became extremely fashionable in Europe uh, during a movement called Egyptomania. Um, the main attractions of Egypt to these people were really references to luxury and wealth. And obviously, those were extremely useful when you're building a new hotel to refer to the luxury and wealth of the patrons and what you might expect when you actually visit the hotel. And that certainly would refer them more to being representations of aristocratic Egyptian and sub-Saharan African women rather than slaves. Ronan, why are the statues going to be reinstalled and why now? Well, there's a couple of reasons, Gavin. One is that, uh, um, you know, the the the, the hotel itself and um, there's been an enforcement notice uh, served on the hotel in in the at the end of July stating that they were uh, that there was a possible breach of planning permission um, these are part of the facade of the Shelburne which is done up in 2016 and uh, the facade is a protected structure so um, they were they had to there was an enforcement notice sent from Dublin City Council and they had to respond to that and they were asked they asked for an extension of four weeks to respond to it. So now this is this is their response that uh, they had commissioned a report uh, by uh, Professor Paula Murphy, who confirmed really what Kyle has just told you there that they are not they are not depictions of slave women, and therefore they will be restored to their plants. Kyle, as you had explained previously, that the golden bands on the feet of the women uh, are seen to be jewellery rather than shackles. But given the context of the conversation which, which led to their original removal, could the statue still be felt to be offensive to those sensitive to how our culture is represented and how women or black people are depicted? Well, absolutely. And I've always substantially agreed that there are are definite um, issues with the statues and the one positive thing perhaps to come out of this is that I'm very glad that that conversation has taken place. I've made a career of trying to make people think about the meanings of the built environment and um, this this conversation has certainly done that. Um, there remain three, I suppose, main problematic, statue, uh, problematic issues with the statues. Um, firstly, there can be no doubt that they form part of a common 19th century artistic fetishisation of the culture of the East as licentious and sexual um, the post-colonial academic Edward Said, of course, famously cast such representations as the creation of a cultural hierarchy where the Occident was centred and the Orient was othered. There's no doubt that the statues form part of that Orientalist discourse. Secondly, regardless of how true the slave identification actually was, the fact that there is clearly a very widely held misconception that they might have been slaves might in, it not, in itself be enough to justify a call for the removal. And finally, it's not really my place as a white man to comment on the impact these statues might have on a woman or a person of colour who views them today. But such impact, of course, may itself again be a reason for their removal. Um, the one difficulty, obviously, I have with the planning issue in relation to this particular matter was that it seemed to be being put forward that this idea that the conversation which had started as a result of what seems to be an illegal removal was in itself a reason to justify that removal. And I think that would be a very dangerous planning law issue in itself. Furthermore, I do think that 
the removal of the statues would be somewhat disproportionate. They are, of course, part of one of the most important 19th century architectural ensembles in Ireland, really the only surviving um, 19th century hotel on this scale anywhere in Ireland. They weren't intended to have any political meaning, and certainly, in my opinion, whilst accepting their problematic nature, um, I still think the removal would have been disproportionate. Any issue with their supposed meaning could have been dealt with by the hotel by affixing a plaque to one of them or printing a leaflet. Um, Senator Batchuk, of course, my old law professor, from whom I own, hold the highest esteem and respect, said that one woman's anklet is another's manacle. But by the same token, it's just as true that one person's problematic representation of African women can, when properly contextualised with a leaflet or with uh, a label on one of the statues, be a potent reminder that two of the world's most ancient civilizations, which far outstripped anything formed in Europe in antiquity, longevity and cultural output, were found in Africa and their glories and the glories of Africa were still being celebrated in 1867. Kyle Layden, art historian Kyle Layden and Rona McGreevy from the Irish Times, thank you both very much for speaking to us this morning.